that's really the driver for me in terms of studying string theory. I'm curious. How could our mind be so clever to try to actually find out this much detail about what's actually happening in front of it with your eyes? And so to me, this connection with the abstract thinking and concrete realization drove me to physics and math. The holy grail for many physicists is a theory of everything, or a unified framework that describes all the fundamental forces and particles. String theory, which posits that everything in the universe is made up of tiny, vibrating strings, could prove to be this universal theory. I'm Caitlin Lee. And I'm Sanjana Narayanan. And this is the Veritas Lab, the podcast where we give you the scoop on the latest research going on at Harvard, straight from the professors themselves. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Kumrun Vafa, the Hollis Professor of Mathematics and Natural Philosophy in the Physics Department at Harvard University. As a world-renowned theoretical physicist, Professor Vafa has conducted pioneering research in string theory. In particular, he has studied the mathematics and geometries that come from string theory, discovered that string theory can be used to derive the entropy of black holes, and developed the 12-dimensional variant of string theory called F-theory. And if none of that makes sense now, don't worry, we'll get there. His recent book, called Puzzles to Unravel the Universe, discusses how simple mathematical puzzles can illustrate the fundamental laws of nature. Professor Vafa, we're thrilled to talk with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to join this. Well, there's definitely a lot to unpack about string theory, since it's such a mind-bending and sometimes controversial field. So let's jump right in. From my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the motivation behind string theory is to reconcile the fundamental differences between Einstein's theory of general relativity, which governs the very large, and quantum mechanics, which governs the very small, into a new universal theory of quantum gravity. I've heard this idea a lot in popular science lectures, but I've never quite understood what exactly makes general relativity and quantum mechanics incompatible with each other. The, the idea is that if you look at Einstein's theory, it includes waves, which are these ripples uh, through the fabric of space and time, which have the effect of making the distances that it passes by oscillate. The distances get bigger and smaller between any two points between which the wave propagates. So these waves are what we call gravitons when you think about them as particles, just like photons correspond to electromagnetic waves. Gravitons correspond to the entity which corresponds to these gravitational waves. So what happens when you try to bring these gravitons near each other and you collide them? You study the process of two gravitons coming and colliding and scattering off of each other. And if you use the usual techniques of particle physics to try to compute the probability of two gravitons scattering off of each other, you find that your answers are infinite. They just don't make sense. So so that's that's the contradiction with, with quantum aspects of gravity. Quantum aspect means you think about gravity as a particle like graviton, just like you think about electromagnetism, wave, electromagnetic wave as being related to photon. That's the quantum aspect. And the problem is that unlike the photons where you, when you scatter them off of each other using the techniques that we know in particle physics, when you try to apply the same techniques to, to compute the probabilities of scattering of these gravitons, you get them to be infinite. So it don't make sense. They don't make sense. And the, the problem is that you're assuming gravity is related to point-like objects called gravitons. And these point-like objects and ends up having a point like object ends up to be the problem that cannot be reconciling quantum theory with gravity and that's the that's the source of that problem 
I see. So the challenge is reconciling Einstein's theory of gravity with the quantum aspect of gravity, which is these particles called gravitons. And when we try to understand the way these gravitons scatter, traditional particle physics kind of breaks down. But string theory can solve this problem? Graviton actually is not a point particle. Gravity is actually looped like an object, so it's not a point-like object. So you think about graviton itself as a vibrating string of some kind, and this, the size of the string would be very tiny, very small. From far away, it looks like a point particle. So it's similar to point particle theory. But when you bring the gravitons near each other to scatter them off, you now begin to see the extended nature of that point becoming like a loop. And that saves the infinities that somehow you get finite answers and you don't get infinities from scattering of gravitons off of each other. And that resolves the paradoxes. So different vibration modes of this string would correspond to different particles. The gravitons that we were just talking about corresponds to the lowest vibrational mode. So you have different harmonics. So when you think about the guitar string and you have harmonics on them, this is very much like the energy of these vibrating strings. So you have different harmonics. The higher the harmonic, the more the mass. So gravity can be seen as strings. That's crazy. Actually, based on the reading that Sanjana and I did, string theory states that all the fundamental particles are actually made up of these tiny one-dimensional strings. And the way that these strings vibrate give rise to the properties of that particle, like mass and charge. So what exactly are these strings? Um, just how small are they and how can we visualize them? The size of these strings, we don't exactly know, but we estimate it to be not too far from the Planck length. The Planck length is like 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. And so the length of these strings would be something around that scale. It could be like 10 to the minus 30 centimeters or 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. But if you look at it from a, the angle that we are at, like one centimeter distance, for us, it looks like point particle because we cannot resolve something as small as 10 to the minus 30 centimeters. They look to us like zero size. So that's why we can hardly distinguish a theory of strings versus a theory of particles from a far distance. And the difference between them is, is accentuated. The closer we get to the string, the closer we zoom in, which corresponds to higher and higher energy. So the problem of infinities, which emerges at higher energy scatterings of these gravitons, which is related to when you zoom in to go to close to the string, you have to replace the graviton by this extended object, which is string. That makes sense, that it's a matter of perspective. So only when we look closely enough and get down to this minuscule plank length do we see the one-dimensional strings. Okay, but then one of the weirdest things about string theory, at least to a layperson, seems to be that it implies all these extra dimensions of space-time. We agree that there are three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, but string theory proposes ten or more dimensions. So what, what we find is that if you try to study string theory in three spatial dimensions and one time direction, it's inconsistent. So somehow the, the, the three plus one dimension does not give rise to a consistent theory of strings. And we have learned that if you want to have a string theory which is consistent with all the principles that we know of in string theory, like conservation of probability and this and that, so things that we think should be true, we find that the dimension of the string theory is 10 dimensional. So nine spatial dimensions and one time. But we actually have learned more than that. We have learned that even the notion of dimension itself is not quite well defined. So for example, if you have a cylinder, which is like a hose, if the circumference of that hose or circumference of that cylinder is very tiny, it looks like a line. But if it's bigger circumference, it looks like a two-dimensional, you know, if you go around the hose, it's two-dimensional. So the surface of the hose is two-dimensional. So whether you call the hose a two-dimensional object or a one-dimensional object, 
depends on the accuracy you're looking at it. So when we say, what is the dimension of the space? Well, the dimension of the space is three-dimensional, the way we are now looking, because these other dimensions turn out to be like the circumference of the cylinder, which are so tiny, you won't see it. Just like saying the hose is one-dimensional if the circumference of the hose is tiny. If you zoom in, it will have more dimensions, so it could look like two-dimensional. So in that same sense, string theory will have nine dimensions, namely there are six extra dimensions, like six circles, which are so tiny that's hard to see. What we also later learned is that even string theory could have different dimensions. And we thought originally to mid 1990s that string theory was only nine spatial dimension and one temporal direction and one time direction. But we learned that actually string theory itself can have an extra circle in it, which is hidden. And so string theory itself became 10 dimensional space and one dimensional time because one of the circles of string theory, which we hadn't appreciated was there also. That's super interesting because it seems to completely contradict the evidence of our own eyes. I think you touched on this just now, but could you explain more about why we don't see these extra dimensions in ordinary life? Where are they hidden? I'm still finding that a bit confusing. So let's go back to that example of that hose. If you were looking at the hose from far away, you might have thought it's exactly a straight line. It's exactly a one-dimensional line. But if you were a tiny, like a microscopic biological system living on this, on the surface of this hose, you would have said, no, not only it's not one dimensional, it's really two dimensional. It's really hard to get around the circumference. You have no idea how long you have to go around to get from one to the other. So from the perspective, your perspective, it's obviously one dimensional, but from the perspective of a finer organism or, or some apparatus, which is measuring shorter distances, it's clearly two dimensional. It doesn't see any reason to call that one dimensional. So this is the same sense in which to us, with our eyes, of course the space is three-dimensional. What do we mean by these extra dimensions? Now, the way you should think about it is that at every point in space, there are these tiny circles. Just like at every point along the length of the hose, there's a tiny circumference circle. So there's a tiny circle, which is the circumference of the hose, which you could in principle go around, but in everyday experiments or in things that we look at from far away, or just the visual mistake that we would make, we would think of it as, no, there is no extra circle, it's just a point. So in other words, the answer to the, whether the hose is one-dimensional or two-dimensional is at what size we're looking at it. How much are we going to zoom in? Far away, it's a good answer is one. Zooming in, really zooming in, it could be two. And zooming even further and further, it could be five or six and so forth. So the, in other words, the depending of what it is, that uh, what aspects of other dimensions that we are hiding around. So if you have different circles of different sizes, you can begin to see newer dimensions open up. And so that's the way we view this. Interesting. So I was wondering, is there a reason why these dimensions have to be circles? I think circles are a common visualization to show layperson audiences what strings look like. But then I was reading about how physicists think that the extra dimensions of string theory are actually compacted into these more complex Calabi-Yau manifolds, which are six-dimensional spaces. When I say circles, circles is uh, just an example. In fact, it's the, probably the most boring example of how these extra dimensions may look like. The next boring example would be a sphere or spheres of different dimensions. And then there will be much more complicated possibilities and people have studied them. And these spaces are, for example, if you're going from nine spatial dimension in string theory down to three spatial dimensions that we live in, you would think that these six extra dimensions could be six dimensional space, six different directions you can go. And visualization of these six dimensions is hard. How do you do it? Well, mathematicians have developed 
techniques to deal with these kind of spaces and how you actually think about these extra dimensions. But it turns out we don't have an arbitrary, arbitrary six-dimensional space. These spaces should solve the equations of string theory. And to solve these equations of string theory, they have to be very special. Examples of them turn out to be luckily studied by mathematicians. And one of these examples, the famous example, Calabi-Yau manifolds have been studied by, by mathematicians and in particular our colleagues at Harvard, uh, Yao in particular. But the main point here is that these spaces are really rich mathematically and they have interesting physical properties in that they solve strings equations and they lead to interesting properties for physics that we observe in three dimensions. In other words, one might think, and this is probably the most exciting lesson of string theory, one might think that these extra dimensions are made small to disappear from our sight and have no impact on physics. It's kind of like a cheating way to get rid of them by making it small. And that's, that cannot be anything farther from the truth. What happens is that the details of what these tiny spaces are turn out to impact how many particles we see, what their masses are, what their charges are, despite the fact that they are tiny. So the details of this geometry of these extra dimensions turn out to be crucial to, for example, having an electron or, or, or its massive partner called muon or yet mass, more massive one tau and so forth. So these details do matter. They're crucial in understanding the physics. So the totality of all these possible things that you can use to, to get a consistent theory of strings is called the string landscape. There's a huge number of possible six-dimensional spaces that you can choose and any one of them we say belongs to the string landscape that in terminology we use. Each landscape gives rise to a different physics in three dimensions that we see. So that in three plus one dimensions, we see a very different physics depending on what landscape point we are at. One of these landscapes, hopefully, is our universe. Which one it is, we still don't know, but that is the hope. That's one thing that we actually found kind of confusing when reading about string theory. The fact that there is no one string theory that there are so many different possibilities for the shapes of these extra dimensions that there could be 10 to the 500 different string theories. So how do we know which is the right one? First of all, there is a unique string theory. So there's the misnomer right. here. There's string theory is unique. Different solutions to string theory is not unique. So let me contrast you to the following. For example, if you study classical mechanics, there's Newton's law. There's law of universal gravitational attraction between objects, mass, massive objects. Now you could say, okay, can you then predict to me why the radius of the earth as it goes around the sun is such and such? Then I say no. What I can tell you is that if you give me where the Earth is relative to the Sun and give me what its velocity is, and if you tell me what these other objects are, then I can use Newton's laws to tell you where they're gonna go. You might say, well, this is not satisfactory because how do I know where the Earth is? There are different Earths that could have at different distances. Yes, they could have. They could have at different speeds. Yes, they could have. So which one it is? There, we wouldn't say that there are different Newton's laws. We wouldn't say that there are different theories of gravity. We would just say that there are different solutions to Newton's equations. This is the same sense in string theory, that there are different solutions to the string theory, not that there are different string theories. Now, there's one difference between this and Newton's theory. In the Newton theory, the, the, the number of particles or their masses and so on, they don't depend on the initial conditions. Whereas in string theory, the detail of the observed physics will depend on the different solutions. So it has a much more dramatic impact about the observable physics, but they are in the same sense as different solutions to the theory. Okay, so just like there could be many solutions to Newton's law of gravity based on things like the distance between the Earth and the Sun, there are many solutions to string theory based on the extra dimensions that you choose. The difference though, like you mentioned, is that in string theory, the physics that we observe in the universe depends on the different solutions to string theory. Could you expand on this? And also, what exactly do you mean by initial conditions? 
the initial conditions in Newton's equations are where do you put the Earth relative to Sun and what initial speed you give to it? And where are the other planets? And where are they going? And so what's their initial velocity? That's the initial conditions. That's what we talk in classical mechanics. Once you give me that, Newton's equation will tell you what happens next. In string theory, the analog of this initial conditions is what are the shapes of the extra dimensions? How many circles do you have? Do you have a circle or sphere instead and so forth? So they're more discrete choices and stuff continuous like where they are and so forth. And for each of these discrete choices that you make, like the shape and the size and all that, for each of these choices, you get a totally different looking physics. Just like we would have gotten a totally different Earth if Earth was very close to the sun, for example, or where, or where it was very far away and so forth. But I guess the difference is that obviously we know how far the Earth is from the sun and those kinds of initial conditions. That's right. So here we also know that too. Here we do know how many particles have what masses. We know that we have electron, we know we have quarks, we know we have photon, we know we have this and that. So we also have a similar data like this. The difference is we will have to then go backwards and see, okay, which point on the string landscape, which shape six dimensional spaces we have to choose to give you exactly the spectrum of particles we have observed with the details we have observed. And that turns out to be a very hard task. Figure out what it is, these quote unquote initial conditions or boundary conditions that we are observing, namely the masses of the electron, the, the mass of electron, the, the properties of other particles. How do you read this off or how do you translate this to the shape of these extra dimensions? That it turns out to be a daunting task. But what we have managed to do is the inverse, namely we have found spaces that give you almost the same structure that we, we see, namely that roughly we see the same type of forces that we have in the, in the observed universe, the same number of light particles. So very similar features to what we have actually observed. So it's not like it's outlandish to believe that there is one which gives you exactly our universe. Okay, so just to recap that so that I understand it, we don't directly know the initial conditions of string theory in the sense that we don't know for sure what the shapes of these extra dimensions are, but we do know what particles exist in the universe and what the properties of those particles are. So now we have to kind of go backwards to figure out the initial conditions, essentially saying what shapes of extra dimensions do we need to get these electrons, quarks, and other particles that we know about. And physicists have been able to find certain spaces of extra dimensions that will give rise to the structure of particles in the observed universe. So I want to move on to one important and related discovery that you're known for. You and Professor Andy Strominger recently identified that one reason we need a universal theory of quantum gravity, like string theory, is to better understand black holes. How exactly can string theory help us explain black holes and their entropy? And just so that our audience is on the same page, a black hole is a region of space-time where gravity is so strong that even light can't escape. Bekenstein and Stephen Hawking in the mid-70s had discovered an amazing property that black holes, despite the fact that they seem to be unique solutions of Einstein's equations with a given mass and charge and so forth, actually seem to behave as if they have internal degrees of freedom when you combine it with quantum theory. However, they didn't have a way to actually assess what are these degrees of freedom. So Stephen Hawking had an indirect argument to suggest that there, there must be degrees of freedom despite the fact that Einstein's solution looks unique and it doesn't give you any hint about the internal degrees of freedom of a black hole. So the question was, what are these degrees of freedom? 
So this, this was a question that was left open uh, by, by the work of Bickenstein and Hawking. On the other hand, string theory has the opposite problem. We have not only three-dimensional space, but we have extra dimensions. And what are these extra dimensions good for? It turns out that the degrees of freedom of the black hole that Hawking and Bickenstein were looking for turn out to be hidden in the extra dimensions of string theory. So the two problems canceled out. And the way that works is that the extra dimensions of string theory gives you a way for strings and membranes to wrap around that you wouldn't see. So since you're looking at this macroscopic gross feature of a black hole, you would just see this blob of a unique solution. But if you zoom in, you find that it's actually no, there's extra degrees of freedom which are hidden in these other directions. And so what we did with Andy Strominger was to count how many ways you can wrap these strings or membranes and so on around these extra dimensions. And we got exactly not only the prediction of Wittgenstein and Hawking, but also corrections to it based on string theory. So we improved the result. We get their result plus many, many corrections just by counting these degrees of freedom. And so that was one of the first uh, clear vindications of the concept of string theory that actually extra dimensions are great and is useful for explaining some of these paradoxes. It's not just hiding it away. Wow, it's pretty incredible that string theory translated into these concrete improvements on our predictions for black hole entropy. Transitioning to another question that we were curious about, even without knowing the math behind it, string theory seems to have a certain elegance to it. The idea that we can have one overarching theory to govern how the universe works, and the power of concepts like supersymmetry between different classes of particles. But the problem, I guess, is that there's currently no experimental verification of string theory. What would constitute experimental evidence supporting string theory, and what are the challenges to finding this evidence? The challenge is related to the fact that strings are tiny. To see them, we have to really have good experimental apparatus to be able to zoom in. And the way we zoom in in experiment is by going to higher energies, by colliding particles against each other at higher and higher energies, which brings them closer and closer together. And in this way, we can probe shorter and shorter distances. And it turns out that this feature is the energies that we have been able to achieve in, in colliders. For example, the biggest one being Large Hadron Collider in Geneva it is huge number of magnitudes, like 10 orders of magnitude in energy, too small for the energies we need to have in order to probe something of the size of the string theory. So it's going to be difficult to have the direct experimental visualization, let's say, of string itself. So in the absence of that, what do we do? Well, in principle, we could get lucky. For example, it could be that if we have a deeper understanding for how the early universe theoretically should have been related to string theory, which is also not completely obvious. People have been working on it, including myself, to try to figure out how, do, how does the early universe behave in the context of string theory. Since the early universe had higher energies, then the strings would have been excited and you would have seen maybe bigger strings and so forth. And perhaps the, the cosmological microwave background that we see in the sky now, which is now huge, might have the imprints of these uh, primordial excitations of strings or extended objects. So perhaps there will be evidences imprinted on the sky somehow of some kind of strings being there at the early universe. So people are trying to have these kind of pictures. There could also be other events like exotic aspects of black holes could be discovered, which hint at string theory. But right now we don't have a concrete path to, to string theory from observations of black holes, unfortunately. So I think the best chance right now seems to be early universe physics, aspects of early universe. Collider physics was also a possibility, especially if they had discovered supersymmetry, which is one of the nice features that many of the string solutions have. Many of the points in string landscape have a property called supersymmetry, which is a property that suggests that for every particle, there is another shadow particle with very similar properties and similar mass, except they have a slightly different internal spin. And uh, one of the particles would be what we call bosons and the shadow would be fermion and vice versa. 
versa. This was a symmetry that was hoped to be observed in the Large Hadron Collider. And if it were observed, then there would have been a better chance to, to bring string theory to possibly confronting experiments. Unfortunately, it was not observed. It is not a problem for string theory that it was not observed, but it doesn't make it easier to get a verification of string theory either. So we have to, we have to for now be developing theoretical underpinning of string theory and hope that we get lucky. And sometimes we do get lucky in experiments. Just since you mentioned supersymmetry, which, like you said, is the idea that every particle has a shadow particle with similar properties, I was wondering, why is supersymmetry so important to the modern formulation of string theory? You could ask, can we have a solution in string theory which lasts forever? It turns out that the only solutions in string theory that last forever are the ones which have supersymmetry. Our universe does not have supersymmetry. There's no such symmetry in the, in the, for example, for electron, there is no particle like electron with the same mass of the electron, but with different spin. Therefore, supersymmetry, even if it is there, it's broken. So we, we have a broken supersymmetry. And since it's not realized, therefore, it must be that uh, our universe is not going to last forever because there's no such thing as lasting universe with super, without supersymmetry. So this is a prediction of string theory that our universe is doomed. It's going to disappear in one form or another. It's not going to go on forever. It's going to decay away in one form or another. And we do not know exactly which way. And people are within string theory are trying to figure out what it is, how it's going to decay away, away what is the lifetime of it. So there's certain models which suggest that the lifetime based on these string decays might be something of the order of uh, one or two trillion years at most. So that's a factor of a hundred at most, more than, more than the age of the current universe. So these are quite exciting things that are related to supersymmetry. And that's why we should care about supersymmetry. It really relates to the fate of our universe. Wow, that's a pretty sobering realization that we're all doomed <laughs> and not just because of the coronavirus either. So is supersymmetry a property that you need for string theory to make sense in the first place? It turns out that all of the string point landscapes that we have at higher and higher energies behave supersymmetrically, that you begin to see this repetition of particles and shadow particles emerging. But at lower energy, that pattern could be broken, like our universe. Right. So the statement about the, the fact that the universe will decay is refers to what happens at lower energy. So if at lower energies, you don't have this supersymmetry realized, if it's broken at lower energies, then uh, you will have the universe which decays. So in some sense, our universe still has presumably some supersymmetry at a very high energy because it presumably is what you think uh, will realize, would, would appear in string theory. But since we are not seeing that at our energy scales, therefore our universe with the properties we know of has to decay to the other parts of the string landscape, which is more supersymmetric. We've really gotten into the weeds of string theory and why it's important. But before we close out, I want to also ask, what's your take on what's next for the future of string theory? The future of string theory is as unpredictable as its past was. In other words, if the past is any guide for its future, we could not have predicted where it evolves to. It was originally not a theory of quantum gravity. String theory originally started by an equation trying to describe strong interactions of particles in experiments. And then suddenly it became a theory of quantum gravity. And then later we understood more about it and so on. So trying to, trying to predict the future, as I say, is a risky business. In this case, especially about string theory, I would say it's very, very risky business as past will indicate. But what I can say is that it's hard for me to imagine that it will not continue to grow in some form. Exactly in what form, I do not know. Whether it's going to be theory for many, many decades or centuries, or whether it's going to be connection with experiments quickly or not, I cannot predict how lucky we get. But I cannot imagine that uh, theorists will not continue thinking about the beautiful structure that has been uncovered through string theory research since late 1960s. And it's still not there in terms of our deeper understanding of the whole universe. And so 
curiosity of, of theoretical physicists will continue to drive them to try to deepen our understanding of what string theory is and is not. And this will continue. Whether I'm lucky to see concrete applications in our life or concrete experimental verifications of string theory, I do not know. And, you know, it doesn't look very likely given my age, but at any rate, I think that I think that that's not necessarily going to dissuade us to to study string theory. So we are still as excited as ever to develop it. Well, I think I speak for all of us when I say that I'm excited to see what the next developments of string theory will be. I think that brings us to the end of our conversation. Thank you again for joining us, Professor Vafa. Caitlin and I learned so much during this conversation, and you definitely made these difficult concepts understandable to us despite our lack of physics background. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Veritas Lab. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Sanjana, and we'll see you next time.